Well, good morning. As we get started this morning in the Word, the reality is, uh, as I was studying the Word this week, uh, I realized what we were going to be talking about, and this concept came to my mind. Any parent can tell you that kids don't like being told to do chores. Yes, amen? Any parent can tell you that kids don't like chores, all right? There are usually a few different responses. One response might be that suddenly, out of nowhere, your child has caught some miraculous illness, right? Where their body just goes limp. And all of a sudden, they can't do this physical chore that you've asked them to do. They hit the ground in a puddle of tears going, why? As the child gets a little bit older, they still complain. It just changes a little bit. The older child responds a little bit less in a physical way, but instead they develop the gift of an inaudible speech, a foreign language, the grumble or the mumble, the speaking under their breath as they walk away. See, they've learned over the years that they're still going to have to do the chore. They're not going to get out of doing the chore but they're going to let you know they don't like it. They're going to protest the whole, why, the whole time. As I thought about this, I realized, you know, why, why is this the case? Being a parent of four kids, why do the kids complain all of the time? Why do they mumble? Why do they grumble? Why do they cry out? Why do we, for that matter? And I realized we don't like doing the things we don't like to do. We just don't. But then I, as I sat with that, I realized it's not just doing the things we don't like to do. It can be things that are hard that cause us to grumble or complain. It could be things that cause us to be uncomfortable, like standing in front of you all and, and speaking. Or it could be something challenging. It's not always something that we don't like to do, but it's usually something that doesn't come naturally that we have some kind of complaint with. The same is true when it comes to following Jesus. And in this, mor this morning, we're going to continue to look at what living a life as a citizen of heaven looks like. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open to Philippians 2. We're going to continue our study together. We'll be reading verses 12 through 18, and I know last week we covered verses 12 and 13, but we're, to keep the context of this part of the, the letter, I'm going to read this whole section. But before we do, let us go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for this morning where we can come and hear you. Lord, we do thank you and praise you for the work that you're doing with our local pregnancy center. Thank you. Lord, and we know that there are many ministries in our, in our town, Lord, that uh, need help in, in, in various ways. 
Lord, the cry of our hearts is, is that you would raise up workers for the harvest. Lord, there is a harvest that is ready. Your word says so. Your word says that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Lord, as we've been studying this letter from Paul to the Philippians and, and realizing how much of it is relevant to us as believers this morning that are in a similar situation, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes to see exactly what you have for each one of us this morning. Guide our time together in your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. You can follow along in your own Bibles. Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the Lord's word. Paul starts out this section here in a continuation of this theme of what it looks like to live your life only as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel of Christ. Last week, we, we covered verses 12 and 13, and it started off with the therefore, and we recognized what the therefore is there for, right? So we come to the second part of the points that were made last week, and he says to do all things without grumbling or disputing. This phrase here in verse 14, the word without means apart from or separately from. It's to do, do things apart from the next statement, right? And he says to do it apart from grumbling, this word means murmuring or muttering. It's a complaint. It's that it is that teenager who has to do the chore and they walk away, you know, and they're mumbling, and grumbling, and you can't understand what they're saying. It's like get the marbles out of your mouth, right? That that's this murmuring, muttering. But he also says to do all things without, apart from, disputing. This word in the original language means calculation or reasoning, plotting, or deliberation. And when you pair disputing with grumbling, it comes up with this idea of arguing with skeptical questioning or criticisms. And so Paul is saying to do all things without arguing, without criticisms, which lines up with what he's been talking about as citizens of heaven to find unity with one another, right? You can't find unity when you're having skeptical questioning and criticisms and arguing, not in this way, right, where there's calculated reasoning. It's okay, by the way, to have disagreements in the body of Christ. It's okay to not, you know, find complete unison on 
things. But there's a difference between that and active deliberation, you know, the skepticism, this, this arguing. And so, you know, when Paul says to do all things without grumbling or disputing, what he's saying is that uh, we're to do this without murmuring and without arguing with one another. And it brings us to the point that as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel, God has given me work to do. And so therefore, I will do it without grumbling or muttering. I will do it in obedience. What came to my mind when I read this verse was the Israelites wandering in the desert, being freed. You know, Moses takes them, God through Moses takes them across the Red Sea, right? And they're wandering in the desert and, and all they can complain about is what they don't have anymore back in Egypt. Even though they were in bondage and slavery, they're muttering, they're murmuring, they're grumbling about what is going on or what they don't have anymore. This is the idea here when Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Verse 15, he says, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now this word blameless here means that you are free from fault or defect. Uh, It's the idea of being free of the judgment of others. So we're to live our lives where we're not doing anything where others can judge us. We're free from that judgment blameless. But not only are we to be blameless, we're also to be innocent. This, this idea in the original language would be unmixed or pure, to be sincere or harmless. Innocent as in a baby in the womb, innocent, that type of innocence. This talks to the intrinsic character And he says that you would be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish. This children of God language literally means a descendant or an inhabitant, a son or daughter of God. And we have to to pause here because we hear this language, but do we believe this language? Do we truly believe that in repentance, in faith, in the, in the sacrifice that Christ made, we are now direct descendants of God Almighty. That's what Paul is talking about. He says, you, as a born-again believer, are a child of God without blemish. This without blemish means without fault or blame. It's the idea of being above reproach. says, do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless, free from, free from judgment, that you may be pure and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. This, this word crooked means perverse, unfair, or curved. That sound kind of like the world we live in today? Perverse, unfair, curved crooked. But not only does he call the generation crooked, he says that they're twisted as well. 
This word twisted means to pervert, to corrupt, to oppose, distort, specifically to morally corrupt. In the world that we live in today, it is easier and easier for young boys and girls for that matter, but statistically speaking, boys to stumble or pursue pornography. Statistics show that even in the church, evangelical church, that 85 to 90% of men polled struggle with pornography. That 60% of pastors struggle with pornography in the evangelical church. Women, you're not excluded. 30 to 40% of evangelical women struggle with pornography in the church. This is the twistedness, the perversion, the corruption of a generation. Statistics also bear that the average age for a boy to be exposed to pornography continues to drop, by the way. The last I saw was 11. I think the last I heard, though I can't find it specifically, is 9 If that's not perversion, I don't know what else is. Paul says to do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. What stood out to me is in the midst This means in between, in the middle of. And so what Paul is saying is that as citizens of heaven worthy of the gospel, we are not to hide away in our church buildings. We're to be in the midst of the generation, in midst of the crooked and twisted generation, in between them. And so as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel, I am free from judgment of others. I am a child of God above reproach. And I am called to be light in the world. I'm called to be in the world, in between them, amongst them. Why? Because we're called to shine our light. This word shine in the active sense literally means to shine or to shed light. In the passive sense, Tone, it means to shine, to become visible, to appear, to show myself as. He says, you're a child of God in between this twisted and crooked generation among whom you're to shine, to appear, to show yourself as lights in the world. And what does Paul mean by light? He literally means like a star with brilliance, radiance, to shine brightly. A 
My friends, we, the church, the, the called out ones, right? That's what it means to follow Christ is that when we have repented of our sin and placed our faith and trust in Christ alone, he calls us out of this world and to himself for himself and for his purposes. We are to show this light, to, re- to let the light come from us that God has given us to this world. And the only way to do that is being among the world. Verse 16, he says, holding fast to the word of life. And by the way, like, if, at least in the English Standard Version, verse 14 is a long run-on sentence. I don't feel so bad about my own grammar anymore. It goes 14, 15, 16 is all one long statement that Paul is making. So he's continuing in this vein of thought. He says, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now some translations, depending on which translation you're, you're reading from, might say holding fast or might say holding forth. Which is it? Well, it depends on interpretation. This word holding fast in the original language can mean holding fast or holding forth. Or uh, holding forth might be better known as holding out as offering. You know, holding it out as an offer. One protects. Holding fast would be protecting this word of life holding fast to it, protecting it. The other one gives it away. Holding forth gives the word of life away. And the reality is there is much debate about exactly what Paul is trying to say here. But as I sat with it, there doesn't have to be much debate. Is it possible that he intended both? Because if we truly think about it, isn't the only way to protect the gospel to send it out, to give it away? Because if our forefathers kept it to themselves, would we have the gospel today? Only God knows. But you can't bury it, right? Think of the, the, the talents, the parable of the talents. The one who buried the talent got scolded so badly because he didn't invest right? That's a parable of the kingdom. The only way to protect the gospel is to give it away. And as I came to this, instantly, I remembered that isn't this exactly what Jesus taught us? Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, Jesus is teaching. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Recently, Hannah got a new uh, prescription for her glasses. Uh, And... As we're driving back from Walmart, you know, and you get on the, the ramp here for the bridge here uh, to go into town, 
as you, as you start approaching that, off on the hill, there's a house. Like, in, if, you're at, if it's at nighttime, it's lit up, you can see it. And Hannah goes, is that a house? <laughs> yeah, honey, that's been there for a long time. I can see that. And then you go, oh, man, it's been way too long since we've gotten her in, right? <laughs> a light set on a hill is seen. Another illustration came to mind. My, my kids have these little green stars stuck to their ceiling. And they, they glow in the dark. They can't create their own light. They require a light source to charge. And I had to look this up because I, I, I'm a nerd, I guess. But there's these things called phosphors in the plastic that, that absorb the light energy, the light waves. And it charges the plastic, these phosphors. Okay? And after the bright light disappears, there's enough energy for these phosphors to glow for a period of time. Until they run out of light to give. These stars, these glow-in-the-dark stars, will never be able to produce their own light. In the same way, this crooked and twisted generation that we are to live among and shine our light on will be positively affected because we're among them. But if we never share the gospel, if we actually never give it away, all we do is help them grow for, uh, glow for a little bit. When we give the gospel away and it's received through repentance and faith in Jesus, we have gained a light source for the kingdom of God. We cannot keep the gospel to ourselves in our church buildings. We must not. We must share the good news. And only when we share the gospel does it have the power to transform others into light sources too. This is what kingdom impact looks like. Transforming lives. It's not enough, it's not enough to just have a person, now hear me clearly please, it's not enough to just get a yes for Jesus. Is that important? Absolutely! Absolutely, that's important, but it's not enough. And this is where the church's discipleship has failed. Because a new believer doesn't know what it looks like to shine light for Jesus when they've just been transformed. They don't know what it looks like. They need someone to mentor and to disciple them, to grow their faith in the word, in doctrine, in practice, so that they can go and be light in this crooked and twisted generation. We have work to do. I fear that we've been this example for far too long where we've put our lamp under a basket. That only those in the basket get to see the light. Jesus says, nobody does that. They put it high on a stand so that it lights up the whole house so that all may see. As Paul says that we're to hold fast to the word of life. This is the gospel that Jesus died for our sins, giving us eternal life for all who would repent and believe in his name. 
So that in the day of Christ, Paul continues, so that in the day of Christ I may be poured out that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. What is this day of Christ that Paul is talking about? Well, we've talked about this before. This is the day when all people will be judged. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 to 11. 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13. Revelation 20, 11 through 21, 8. All speak of a coming day where judgment comes, not only to the world, but to believers as well. This is the day of Christ in which Paul is referring to when he says, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain. There's a day coming, church, where not only the world, but those who claim Christ as their Lord and Savior will stand before Christ as judge. There is a day coming. So Paul reveals his desire for believers to live in this way, always sharing the gospel until the day of Christ comes. And he says, so that he may be proud that he didn't run in vain. What is this about? The idea is is that any shepherd knows that, or any teacher, if you've been a teacher, and you've been able to teach a child, and they grow up and they're able to teach another child. There's, I've done my job. I'm proud in that. But if you've spent so much time and energy into somebody and, it, and they can't get it, boy, is that disappointing. <laughs> this isn't a pride that swells up within. It, it's, a, it's a pride of like, oh, praise God, like they got it. Right? It's okay to have that level of pride because the glory goes to God. Right? Paul is saying that in that day when judgment comes, I will be proud that I didn't run in vain, that I didn't labor in vain. He says, so that I will be proud. So as we share the gospel with others, the reality is it can be hard work. To disciple a believer is not temporary. It's a long-term commitment to disciple another person. But there is much joy in seeing those souls in heaven one day. Paul continues in 17 and 18, and he says, Even if I am being, excuse me, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Boy, that's a tongue twister. I am glad and rejoice with you all. What is, what is Paul? Poured out as a drink offering. This isn't something that we, culturally speaking, would understand. But it would have been very understood to the Philippians and, and that day what Paul was talking about here. The, the Greek word is spendo for this whole phrase, poured out as a drink offering. comes down to one Greek word, spendo. And it literally means to be offered. The reality is is that drink offerings were a common practice, both in pagan and with the Hebrews. It was common practice to have this thing called a drink offering. 
when it came to their sacrifices. In fact, God gave Moses instructions regarding drink offerings. They were to accompany many of the sacrifices that the the Israelites had to offer to God. And usually it consisted of wine. The drink offering was poured out as the final part of the sacrifice. So Paul is painting a picture to the Philippian believers because they would have understood what a drink offering meant. They would have understood when the drink offering was given. They would have understood the word picture that Paul is making when he says that even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering, Paul is saying that his life has been a sacrifice in the Lord. And even if it is at the end, even if it's come to the point where he's going to lose his physical life, he's willing to take it to that point. Reality is, Paul, again, he's writing this letter from prison, and while he previously has shown some, in his writing, some hope that he's going to be released, and almost borderline confidence that he will be released, there is a reality that he really just doesn't know whether or not he will be released. And so in his writing, he's saying, even if my life is coming to an end right here, right now, being poured out as a drink offering, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. He says that he finds joy in living his life as a sacrifice to the Lord in his service to them. And then, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice in me. He says, likewise, the Philippians are to also live their lives in this way and be glad and rejoice. Which means that as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel, my life is a living sacrifice to the Lord. Everything I do as a, as a representative of Christ is a living sacrifice. Because, like we started, I don't like doing things that I don't like to do. It doesn't come naturally to live my life as a citizen of heaven. It doesn't come naturally to you. You may even have the, the, the grandest desires to live this way, but until Christ comes or calls you home, there's this thing we have to deal with called the flesh our fleshly desires, and it wages war with the spiritual desires. And the reality is, there's a small part of us that doesn't like to live as a sacrifice, to give up the worldly things. But here's Paul saying, even if it comes to pouring my life out for your faith, I am glad and rejoice in that. Therefore, no matter how hard it may be to live my life as a citizen of heaven, worthy of the gospel, I will not grumble or mutter. Instead, I will rejoice and be glad. Would you pray with me as we close?
Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths of your word. We thank you that in your word we find the realities that so many of us wrestle with, Lord. So many of us struggle with what it looks like to live our lives sacrificially for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that we would learn how to surrender more fully and more completely to you. As we begin this new year, Lord, I pray that each one of us would even take, learn how to take even one step closer to you in this way. Because, Lord, you are calling us out of this world to yourself with a mission to be in this world as light. But we can't live like the world and shine as light. Each one of us has to lay the old life down. So Lord, this year we ask that you would transform us, that you would move in your church, in the lives of your people, and that you would lead us in this year. It's in your name we pray. Amen.